welcome to the podcast. What? Oh yeah! Listen here, baby. Dig it? You understand, baby? What? First name John, last name Baker. Uh-huh. Brother. Hello and welcome to the Podski. I am your host, the man of a thousand gimmicks, John Baker. Today is a very special podcast. We are having our very first guest come on to the Podski, and it is going to be my beautiful wife, Allison, and we are going to discuss a recently watched documentary. And it is on Woodstock 99. We just wanted to get on here and give our thoughts and opinions on. Uh, what we thought about the documentary and how things could have been a little bit different. And we really enjoyed it, so we hope you enjoy our conversation. Also want to thank you for listening in to That's So Dolphins Talk. Want to apologize for the audio issues that we kind of had in there for a little bit. Not only was it week one for the Dolphins, but it was week one for us as well. But we will get better, and I feel very confident in everything that we're doing here on the Podski. Um, Really thought that we did really well in that. Very happy with it. And we're just going to keep growing and onward and upward here on the Podski. So a lot of new things that are going to be happening throughout the pod. We have a uh, guest this week. We're going to be bringing a new reoccurring guest uh, next week. So that's something to look forward to. Very excited for that pod. No spoilers. Not spoiling anything for you. We're going to let you wait on it. But uh a new segment that I want to bring into it, because I don't want to keep doing the weekly Roundup Jones. I only want to do the Roundup Jones when something is, when it's important. And it's, and I'm just diluting it with the same topic every time. So what we're going to do now is the Dave Meltzer quote of the week. I, <laughs> I've been kicking around an idea for something fun like this for a while, and this is going to be something I that I find fun because I love... I love Dave Meltzer, um, and I just find the things that he says, not only just all the time, the things that he writes, everything, it, sometimes it is just so ridiculously funny. And uh, so here we go with the Dave Meltzer quote of the week. Dave Meltzer's quote of the week. The Godfather is a pimp on Monday, but not on Thursday. And that was Dave Meltzer's quote of the week <laughs> all right thank you dave for a great quote um if you guys want to do anybody else or if you have any other thoughts and opinions please let me know on that at the underscore podsky on twitter we are working on a facebook uh i'm just really slow at it right now and but we're going to get that up and running as well to help get the word out too so if there's anybody you want to see let me know. We will for sure get it on the show. Uh, but I just thought Dave was funny just because all the things that Dave ends up saying. But uh, yeah, as I said, we're not going to do the weekly roundup, Jones. So let's get right in to Woodstock 99. All right. Coming into the Podski, we have our very first guest, Allison. Thank you for coming on the Podski. Thanks for having me. Uh, we watched the Woodstock 99 documentary, and it was on Netflix. So if you haven't watched it yet, there will be heavy spoilers ahead. We're going to cover the entire thing and really what we thought about the entire three episodes. And uh, what did you think about it? Did you like the 
you like the, uh, the whole entire documentary? I really liked it. I definitely suggest watching it if you haven't seen it yet. And then pause this. And then after you watch it, play this again. Yeah, definitely do that. Um, so well, one of the things that was I really found interesting of the whole documentary is that it was filled with live footage and like a lot of home footage, which I thought was really, really cool. Not that all of that footage was great, but um, I don't know. I just I whenever I thought of Woodstock 99 and kind of like my memories of it, because full disclosure, I was eight years old when this happened. So I don't remember any of this, but I've heard about it over the years and I didn't know any of the what kind of happened. But I thought that, that was really cool that there was like so much footage out there on it. Uh, but getting into the documentary here. This this venue that they had, uh, it was in Rome, New York. It was a retired airbase. It's humongous. And one of the reasons that they had chosen this venue was because they had previously done Woodstock 94. And while it was regarded in a lot of with a lot of success, they had an issue where the fence had ripped away and they lost a ton of money. So one of the things that was said from the get-go was that when we do this, we want to make as much profit as possible. And they chose this airbase because there was only one way in and you weren't getting out. And there was just the, people weren't going to be able to break in and get in for free anymore. You're going to have to enter with a ticket. But they didn't tell anybody that they were having it at an airbase. So everybody showed up thinking they were getting some hippie flower field giant open space of music festival and they were sitting atop like macadam and it was hot and there was no shade at all <laughs> right it is like an asphalt heaven because it was an airbase so like there was there was absolutely zero shade and and uh, i get it it's a cool idea but when people are expecting woodstock in the 60s and they show up woodstock 99 and just see nothing but a building and some blacktop, it's disappointing, I'm sure. Right, and even when some of the footage that I saw from 94, because I had actually watched, there's an HBO one that was, that had been, this has been a few years ago when that one was released, released, and I watched that one kind of after I had watched this one to get extra knowledge about it. And that's a completely different venue as well from this. Like, it's more resembles the 69 Woodstock than it does 99. Uh, but one of the cool things that I thought was that it, you had to have real, I mean, I guess it's because of the times, but you got a real physical ticket that was mailed to you, um, but that ticket was $150. But I thought that was like a lost art because like now you just get your tickets on your phone, or you just print them out and you just roll. But I thought that was really cool that like they actually got the tickets sent to them in the mail. I, I just felt like that was a little bit of a lost art because I remember getting that whenever I was a kid if I ever went to something. I think having them on your phone takes away from the fun yeah, a little it, bit. Right, <laughs> I know. It's fun. I agree. Because, like, when you get that, like, ticket, because, like, you, that's something to keep forever. Yeah. And, yeah. like, when you get on your phone, it's just, like, stored, like, on the cloud or whatever. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, but let's get into the promoters. The They brought back the original promoter from the original Woodstock uh, in 69 and in 94. Uh, his name was Michael Lang. Uh, he was throughout the entire documentary, and he just really, he came off as, like, somebody that was, like, incredibly naive and flower power and just looked at 
Woodstock it, with rose-colored glasses. He just couldn't accept that, you know, music had kind of changed and it, it, this whole thing evolved into a huge profit gain, in which that's what he wanted because he literally said that in the, in the documentary. And I think for him, like, he thought, as long as I want everyone to get along, they'll just get along because that's what we're aiming for. And he had no knowledge of any other scenario except for the little perfect plan in his head. Right. And uh, and a lot of the, he had no knowledge of the artists that they had booked either, which will jump into John Cher, which we have a lot of comments on because he is a very successful music promoter. He has worked with a lot of the huge bands like the Stones and a few like uh, those really, really large bands that are well known. And he just was the most arrogant blame shifter and a huge profit chaser. And with his guidance and promotion, this whole thing was promoted as not your mother's Woodstock. So he cleared all of the music with michael but like michael had no idea who these people were and it just kind of felt he just came off really bad in this entire thing i thought yeah i don't think that anybody's opinion of him after watching this would be a positive one he was so oblivious and even still like took absolutely none of the blame at all he deflected the entire time took no ownership for the part that he played no, he was a total blame shifter, and I just, I, and even his comments on the women throughout the entire thing was really bad as well. And it just, it, it came off so poorly. Um, but we did mention, I did mention the set list a little bit. Um, a lot of those, I mean, this set list is killer. Like, th this is a dream style set list. Personally, for myself, like the DMX, Kid Rock, Limp Biscuit, Corn, Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers, who are one of my favorite bands ever, uh, the Foo Fighters. I, I, that was one that I was like, whoa! Like I didn't realize yeah. the Foo Fighters were there. They weren't even mentioned in the in the documentary. Um, Jewel and Cheryl Crow, which was kind of her little. Speaking of women, though, she was also treated very poorly. So, like, just that part of the documentary, the, as she's trying to perform, she's getting things screamed at her. As she's being interviewed by MTV, she's getting things screamed at her from the crowd. If they are treating Cheryl Crow that way, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a woman standing in the crowd. And although the set list is great, I'd say it is great if you have security. But you cannot have bands like that and consider Peace Patrol enough to regulate all of those people. It's just a pathetic attempt. Yeah, I, I, the Peace Patrol was the most embarrassing part of the entire the the entire setup and promotion because if you're just going to hand out T-shirts to like kids that are 16, 17 years old and say, hey, you're security. Like you are, you were just asking for trouble. And as soon as they showed the Peace Patrol, like the t-shirts and everything, like I laughed out loud because I was like that, that it's no, like they, they knew they clearly were cutting costs. And well, and I think, yeah, that's a huge thing. And Michael Lang even said in the documentary, he didn't want to involve cops. 
Like, why? Why Why would you not want to involve cops? Like, I get it. You want this to be a great, peaceful time, but it's a lot of people. You get cops involved because you have to, or bad things happen like they happened. Yeah, it's all public safety, not for the fact of, like, his whole deal was that he didn't want to have guns portrayed there at the show because this whole they had an underlying agenda and that agenda was for gun violence because this had happened right after columbine and while can i just say though that if you wanted to have a peaceful time and only have peace patrol you get peaceful bands uh, no i agree you get like <laughs> I, I don't know mumford and sons and obviously they weren't around then but bands like that like jewel and cheryl crow would have been fine willie nelson would have been fine with the peace patrol but you throw in limp biscuit whose lyrics and song title is Break Stuff, what do you think the people are going to do when they're being encouraged to break stuff? And he knew what the songs were when he signed these bands, so I don't think that it's fair to say that it's Limp Biscuit. He's just singing the songs that he sings all the time. Right, and when you're a promoter and you are signing artists, like you're, you're signing them because of the, art, the artwork that they're portraying. Like, you're... You're, now you're you're signing up for everything that comes along with that. And in my opinion, like, if Michael Lang can sit there and say, oh, I didn't know, why are you signing them? Like, I get it. John Cher was a part of it, and Michael Lang played a role. But, like, you don't get to say, oh, well, I didn't know. You're promoting this. You need to know. Like, yeah. you shouldn't promote something if you don't know what they're singing. Right. And then and that brings back to the whole thing was just to make the most amount of profits they possibly could. And one of the things that they talked about in the documentary was the fact that they started cutting costs and they had to sell the rights for food and drink. And when they did that, they quote unquote lost control of the pricing over everything. So a bottle of water was $4 and in the beginning. In, in the beginning. And then that just increased as the days went on. I think the one girl said that a bottle of water was $12 by Sunday. And, like, back then, wasn't I would assume water was like 50 cents well, for a was, bottle. I think the whole thing was supply and demand. They took everybody's water and food when they walked in, so they knew these people had nothing. They were going to pay whatever they could to get water. They're sitting on blacktop in the sun, sweating. I forget what the temperature was, but it I think was they said high. yeah. I think they said the first day was like ninety, and like it, when you're sitting, just because the air temp is ninety, you got to account for at least ten to fifteen degrees hotter on asphalt. And you also have to consider the drugs that we all know they were doing are dehydrating their system to begin with so they're desperate for water they're going to pay whatever you make them pay but they're also going to get pissed that you're making them pay that much right and that was another really interesting point that they said that once you got in the gates they made you give up all of your food and drink like you weren't allowed to take food and drink in and even water even if they could prove that it was water it yes didn't it, matter. right if they could prove that it was water you had to dump it out but it didn't matter like you could bring literally as as much drugs as you wanted they didn't stop anyone from taking that in but it was like food and drink you got to let it let it here and i thought Which that just was insane. goes back to them only wanting to make money right they did not care about anybody being safe or obviously they would have taken their drugs <laughs> yeah they just cared about money they weren't selling drugs so they're not going to take those right and um yeah i just 
I can't imagine going into a world where, like, especially nowadays, because we have to remember back then they didn't have cell phones. So, like, if you lost somebody, there's like 250,000 people at this event. How do you get in contact with these people? And one thing that was not covered in the Netflix documentary that we're talking about is that this is what they covered in the HBO one. The HBO one, they basically had a phone bank set up where you could call your parents to, or like your, if you went with a group of friends, you could call their relatives or whatever. Hey, have you heard from them? I can't find them. And then they had a giant lost and found bulletin board that was on site as well. Like, I can't imagine going to something like this and not being able to find your friend or like anybody that you're with, like complete. I can't imagine a world like that. All I think of is panic. Yeah. (laughs) And there's no cops. So you can't, you can't call them. Right. Just pure panic. And then even to just add on top of the suck salad of (laughs) the price gouging and everything is that by, so this started, this was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday deal by Saturday morning. The garbage had not been picked up. It was all over the place, and the porta pots weren't cleaned, like at all. Like, I and can't... imagine now, like Coachella is disgusting from what I've heard after a couple days, and they're prepared. These people were not prepared at all, and it's disgusting. So I just can't imagine the level of how bad it was. Right. I... Because in actually in the thing, the one of the workers was telling the kids, like, hey, let's start picking up after ourselves. What are they going to do? They're not there to pick up the trash. Right. Like, which is as whatever, as disrespectful as that is. You cannot expect you're not going to hire and pay people to pick up their trash because they're just going to do it themselves. Like, I'm sorry. You're screwing them and not giving them water. They're not picking up after right. themselves. Yeah. And they had made it seem like in the... um. Well, I, I don't want to give away a little bit. We'll we'll work. To, I have I have a thought that we'll get to later on. But one of the other things that was kind of like building up from the price gouging and the sanitation too was the addition of like this was posterized like corporate America. Like they had a huge beer garden. Which if you hear beer garden now, like I would I get excited when I hear beer mm. garden. But like. There, it was just like in-your-face promotion. You're going to pay all this money for all of this stuff, and you have nowhere to go because you can't leave. And I just thought it was wild. Like, it just... then. But then the addition of MTV, who made a huge presence throughout the entire thing, they, like, were public enemy number one, it seemed like, to a lot of the people. They, um, because at the time, MTV was shifting from just, like throwing whatever music out there and being the alternative to like rock and roll and all that, they were transitioning to corporate America and pop. And these uh, from like the footage that they were showing, like they were like public enemy. Number one, they were getting harassed left and right. Like people with the trash on the second day, they were throwing all the trash at the MTV like stage. And I just thought that was because me at eight years old, I didn't view MTV like that, but it's weird to look at them at like the crowd and everybody there. Like they, they did not want to see MTV at all. Like, but I also just think they were angry. Yeah. I, I, part of me wonders if they weren't throwing things at the camera crew to 
bring attention to the fact of how bad it was. Like, a lot of the things were, like, water bottles, and I'm not saying that it was right at all, but I'm just, like, if I was in that situation, like, I'd be, like, people need to know how bad this is because there is no social media. Like, you don't have people taking pictures on Instagram and being, like, look at how crappy this situation is. So I thought maybe they were doing it to get their attention. Yeah, and I... Yeah, I, I would agree as well, because I can't imagine, like, it, this would never happen today. I guess the only thing imaginable in today's world would be fi- uh, Firefest. And that, like, I can't even, like, that was published. I mean, but they never even, like... They didn't even get to the show. No, like, they yeah. didn't even get a chance to show up and get pissed. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I just thought that MTV, like, they really, like, they were they were portraying, like, oh, we were here to, you know, just report on how how awful this was and you know we're not the bad guys but like the people truly viewed them as the bad guys and i thought that was really interesting they probably thought they were getting paid paid as a part of it or something yeah somehow i would assume i mean based off of everything else i would not i wouldn't well and if they were advertising that they were going to be showing the film of like the whole thing as it's Mm -hmm. playing out it probably encouraged people to buy tickets so then people could have gotten pissed at mtv and been like I watched on your channel. I should go to this, blah, 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 blah. And this is not what I signed up for. And it's your fault. Right. I think the other addition to the uh, MTV was the pay-per-view aspect of this because they did a pay-per-view thing where you could buy and you could go home and watch this live every single day or they'd cut it up. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm sure it's pay-per-view. Like They they just aired it live. And the guy on the documentary is like, I'm just filming... I'm like I had no rules and I was just out there filming the just all of the tits and ass and dicks and everything like it was <laughs> it, at one point in the documentary it was like can we like just not like see that like because it got old after a while okay but what I will say though is that was John Cher's defense in the fact that women were getting raped he blamed it on the fact that all these women were walking around without their tops on like I'm sorry I get it if you don't want to see it like that's fine don't look like I'm not saying you but the people at the actual show you cannot blame a woman for not having her shirt on and that's why she gets molested or raped or anything like that you have nude beaches and no one's getting bothered there no one's getting violated on a nude beach but yet that was John Cher's excuse for the fact that women were getting raped in the mosh pits because they weren't wearing clothes i'm sorry but a shirt not having a shirt on does not constitute yeah sir i i'd ask for that no i don't think so and he claims that just because he didn't see these things happening they didn't actually happen like at one point, he said, I don't know, there were reports of rapes happening in the mosh pit, but, like, I didn't see it. Like, what did he expect someone to do? Raise their hand? Like, hey, I'm about to go do this. I just wanted you to watch so you can see it happen. Like, I don't think so. I highly doubt that. Yeah, and one of the things that I found incredibly ballsy, and this was another thing that just I was just like, wow. Like, they did the press conferences in the morning, and... That was one of the things that MTV and like not just MTV, but like they brought that up constantly throughout the whole thing. Every news media outlet, they were bringing up like, are you guys are like, have you been out there? Like, do you see the sanitation? Like, it, there's trash everywhere. People are getting hurt. 
like legitimately hurt because of the mosh pits and they were just like oh yeah it's just a few bad apples out there and it's they're they're okay and they just like downplayed the entire thing like they they made it seem like it was like a few people when it was if you watch the footage it was a majority of people but again even even if they're right even if it is only a few people security would have gotten rid of that problem like you go to a concert now if you do anything you're not supposed to do there's three security having flashlights on you and you're getting pulled out you get one warning and if you don't stop you get pulled out immediately Mm -hmm. that's why security matters because then the bad apples get removed and it doesn't spread yeah to day three (laughs) oh yeah well and so like a lot of this stuff was happening on, I mean, it happened the entire time, but it got really, it got worse in the rave pit, uh, the rave hangar, I guess you would call it, that second night where there was like, um, so Saturday was supposed to be the huge day. They had Kid Rock, Limp Bizkit, uh, I believe Metallica was Saturday night too, uh, but they, like, it just, the, the rave thing where they had Fatboy Slim and then... Everybody that was, like, at the main show came to the rave hangar, and, like, all hell was breaking loose, and there was just a dude just driving a van and (laughs) through the hangar, and, like, it it just was getting way out of control, and they they just downplayed the entire thing. They just act like nothing was happening at these press conferences when they had them in the mornings, and, like, but all of the staff and everybody was like, we have major issues. Like, internally, they kept saying this. Like, we have major issues, and... Michael Lang and John Sher were just like, nah, it's just a few bad apples. <laughs> I, I just couldn't stop laughing at that entire, like, their their descri- their description of what was happening. Yeah, it's yet just another excuse so that they don't have to take ownership in the part that they played. Right. Um, but I kind of wanted to go, I wanted to go back a little bit because um, the set list, uh, after watching, because I've watched some of these now, and some of these I had watched beforehand and didn't even realize that they were Woodstock 99. Like, I've seen the DMX set. I've seen that, like, years ago, and I had no idea that was Woodstock 99. Uh, but the corn one, like, I would have been super pumped to see corn. Um, one thing that, like, I, I really didn't even realize, that they had Me- Metallica was there, but they were not mentioned. Like, there was not a single peep of Metallica, and I just thought that was kind of strange how, like, they weren't mentioned at all. But I think the probably the most... That I really, I really would have wanted to see uh, Limp Biscuit, and probably my most like, I really would have wanted to see the the Peppers because like I love the Peppers, but um, but things like kind of really got out of hand at the Limp Biscuit show, and that was on Saturday, and that's where things really started going downhill because uh, as Allison had mentioned earlier, she mentioned that you know obviously his his big song at that time was Nookie and Break Stuff and. I mean, he just was watching the crowd, and he was being Fred, ultimate Fred Durst. Like he was there to perform. Yeah, if and, he didn't perform the right. way he normally does, they would have gotten pissed, and oh, that yeah. would have been on him and his reputation. He right. wasn't going to have that. No, and he put on a hell of a performance. I I think, and it, it the, they were talking about in the documentary how they had the soundstage out in the center and everybody was like they had whenever he started singing break stuff that's whenever things got really out of control because they started to tear down the sound tower and 
they, they like it was almost going to come down. They were ripping the wood off and they were using the wood to crowd surf. Like it got incredibly out of hand. And that's basically where uh, John Sheriff thought that things were out of hand. And they basically removed the Limp Biscuit off the stage. They told him the set's done. And that's where you get like the famous clip of him coming around the corner right after it's done. And he's like, it's not my fault, which I agree with him. But, um, I also did want to make, I, I had to get this in as a, a little note for myself. Uh, I have seen the GIF of Kid Rock in, in the fur coat. And it's one of my favorite GIFs of all time. And I had no idea that that was Woodstock 99. I thought that was hilarious that as soon as I saw him walk out in the documentary in that fur coat, I was like, that is where that GIF is from. And I, I just love it. I just think it's one of the greatest like visuals ever is just him walking out in that enormous white fur coat. And it's like a bajillion degrees outside. Uh, but there's a lot of things that we're building up, as we've mentioned, and it really goes wrong on night three where uh they're at the end of the peppers and they want to do a candle like a candle vigil i guess you would call it and basically what they didn't really explain this this well in the netflix one but they really explained it well in the hbo one they had a tent where there was you could sign a petition for gun violence and if you signed the petition you were handed a candle and they said Sunday night we're going to do the candle vigil and, you know, we're going to do this and it's going to be a great visual for all everything and we're going to, like, send a message for gun violence and all that. Well, <laughs> what ended up happening was they literally took those candles and lit stuff on fire and just... Yeah, I think they forgot that fire can be violent. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, and the way that they painted it in the Netflix documentary, John Sher was like, well, that, that was just on Michael. Again, blame shifter. Yeah. He was like, that's just on Michael. And, you know, he that was his deal. I I didn't have anything to do with that. And I just thought that it, it just classic John Sher throughout the whole entire thing, just blame shifting again. But it's it's one of those things like I don't know what you expect when you put flames in these people who have been getting absolutely just murdered at every aspect of their life the entire these last three days what did you think was going to happen yeah. like uh, basically having bands that encourage destruction and then handing everyone fire at the end of it at, after they were already destroying things like they were already destroying things and then they handed them fire right but it was only a few bad apples correct yeah just a couple <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> it's just like th there's zero accommodations there's price gouging out the wazoo and the um the the netflix one was basically like yeah we're like out of food and whatever and you know all these people are so great they came and supported and they paid their money and all that and everyone was like so fed up with the prices and they just like tore the entire they torched the entire place they destroyed the oh uh, what's the place called where they had the um the vendor the vendor area, all that vendor tent area, they destroyed that, destroyed the ATMs, like, just raided the entire thing, and it got so out of control. And just gross. It oh, was just yeah. gross. It, yeah. Like, they not only were destroying those types of things, but they were taking the porta-potties and, like, I guess flipping them or pushing them over, mm -hmm. and people didn't realize that their mud sliding was not mud. 
it was feces and yeah. I forget how many people said they got sick. That one woman yeah, the, got yeah, an infection. Yeah, the one woman had trench mouth after yes. after the first day. That she said, I woke up Saturday morning and I had cold sores all over my mouth and oh. I realized I had trench mouth because I was drinking basically shit water. Like I can't imagine like I when when I saw the sanitary conditions in that fur in, in in the footage like I looked at Allison and I was like, if the, if we would have been there, we would have been gone. But like, like, if this would happen today, they would be sued. Oh, they yeah. would be in so much. Oh, it trouble. would. Yeah, it would never happen. And one and one of the other things that really got out of hand with the sanitation was that they had a water pipe and they broke the water pipe, and that's what started that mudslide. Was because there was just water running everywhere, and everyone was like, "Oh, we finally got water, but we're we're rolling around in our own turds." Like. <laughs> It, it, that part was just wild. Like I, I can't, I can't imagine. And so as as they're raiding the vendor tent, like it's it's turning into apocalypse now, basically, where it's every man for yourself yeah. for themselves. They're they're lighting everything on fire, and then they get to the trucks where they had all the food and drink in those coolers, and they ended up raiding them. And those things ended up being loaded with water and everything. Like, they just were not supply. They, there was so much demand for it that it was just classic supply and demand. They were basically hiding yeah. the water so that people would think, well, I guess I have to pay $12 because there's not much to go around. What other choice do I have? Right. And one of the ladies in the HBO documentary that was a part of the show, like, she was an attendee, she said the most... The best she felt throughout the entire show was during the raid because she finally had water because they broke, they finally broke in and they just were handing out waters to people like who were just, I mean, like you're in a melee or whatever and you're getting water, but she said that's the best she felt the entire three days. So sad. Yeah, it is sad. And it was just like really like disgusting almost to kind of watch like that's like how out of control like humans can be. Like they can only take so much and like when you've had enough, like that's what they resorted to. Like. It was wild to watch. Like just They knew it was over. They right. saw the bands that they wanted to see, and they were then getting their revenge for being treated like that. Right, and, and I think the other little caveat to add to uh, they saw the bands that they wanted to, The one of the things that they teased in the documentary is that they were supposed to have a surprise act, and that surprise act was they had heard rumors of Prince, Michael Jackson, Bob Dylan, Grateful Dead, Guns N' Roses, like, people had expectations of someone coming out after the Chili Peppers. And the Chili Peppers do their their last song, Under the Bridge, and they have the whole candle thing, and then that's it. Then and, and they just put Jimi Hendrix up on the screen, and people were like, that That was a little bit of a addition to the Final Rage blowover, I yeah. think, too. I mean, there was everything else, but that didn't help either. But... I just can't. There's so many things that we pointed out where it went wrong. It's hard to just point out just like one little thing. But I don't know. I, I, one of the things that we really wanted to point out in this pod, like whose whose fault was this whole thing? And I'm pretty sure based off of what we've already said, you can already come to your own conclusion, what we're already going to say. But for myself, it's it's on the promoters because they didn't plan enough. They only were out for the profits and they didn't give a shit about anybody that came there. They got their money and that's all they cared about. Yeah, I would have to agree. I say it's for sure the promoters. And I think 
I don't know if I would have felt that way totally back then, but after watching the documentary and seeing them double down and taking absolutely no ownership for what they did, they talk about how everyone there was actually just lunatics. And the, John Sher is actually quoted saying that. And it was a generational problem, really. Like, back in 69, no one would have acted like that. Um, and this generation is just entitled. And they feared growing up. He literally said they feared growing up, so yeah. they acted out instead of just getting a real job because they have too much angst. So they came there to get all of their angst out. <laughs> and Michael Lang claimed it was just a lost opportunity because 90s kids have a different headspace. And, like, I'm sorry, no. And I don't care if you were born at any age. You're going to get upset that you're being charged $12 for water and you have mm -hmm. nowhere to go to the bathroom. No, I, I agree. I don't care how old you are. Yeah, and, and like, I guess we I view it because I don't know what the translation or the, um, what the difference in dollars would be from the 90s to today but or i guess it's just the mentality i guess as well of myself but i'm already expecting to get price gouged no matter what but that was like not a thing in the 90s but the price doesn't change the price doesn't right like you don't get to the end of your concert and all of a sudden yeah water is so expensive and you're not going to get water for uh, two yeah more days. that's true that's very true um but yeah i, I can't put blame on the artist because like I said earlier, you're you're when you're signing somebody to do a service for you and you're reliant on that talent, you, you get what you sign up for and that's on you. If you can't police it or control it, that's on the promotion. And that's the artists are who they are. Right. That you signed them up to be who they are and that's what they did. And that, they can't be blamed for that. Right. And that's in any form of entertainment. That's not just music. Like that goes everything. it's everything. It, it goes across every single piece of entertainment. And I won't I won't talk about wrestling in this one, but I did have okay. some wrestling things. But I, I I had some wrestling thoughts about that. But it's it's for sure on the promotion. And there was just it's just wild that they that the promotion wanted to blame the attendees for oh well it's just a bunch like what you've already said. And I, they I don't basically wanna... set them up to fail. Right, right, yeah. Basically set them up to fail is a really good word. But um one of the things that I wanted to do personally because I Whenever I saw Woodstock 99, I personally thought of another show that was eight years before 99. It was called Monsters of Rock. And majority of people probably listening to this pod already know what I'm talking about. But if you're not familiar, if you ever watch the Enter Sandman uh, music video by Metallica, that, uh, that um, music video was shot at Mo Monsters of Rock. And it was... A, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm, yeah. Hmm. And uh, so I wanted to draw some parallels and, and to like show share comparisons as to if they would have used their heads and planned out a little bit more, like all of this could have been prevented. And like we probably would still be having Woodstocks today. Uh, but both shows were done at massive military bases. Now, obviously, Monsters of Rock was done in Russia, so, like, it's a little bit different of... It, we're dealing with completely different people, but, I mean, again, humans are humans, and they're both... They were both on these huge military bases. They were both meant for peace, love, and freedom, which that is... Woodstock 99 painted that picture as if they were out for peace, love, and freedom, but 
this the one of uh, Monsters of Rock was truly peace, love, and freedom. And Time Warner was who, if you don't know who Time Warner is, they're a huge cable company. And they wanted to give the gift of they wanted to give the the people of the Western Hemisphere the gift of rock. So like this was a touring thing and it kind of culminated in ninety nine at this huge show in Russia. And they wanted to give the gift of rock to people. And it and, and a huge difference I found was that Woodstock 99 was price gouging out the ass. Monsters of Rock was free. You paid nothing to get in. Now, Monsters of Rock, they weren't providing like food or drink or whatever, but this was only a one night deal. So it that was also the, a little bit of a small difference. But the crowd size, Woodstock 99 had 250,000 people. Monsters of Rock had double that for one night. And these people were there like at Woodstock for three days. Like it, if you watch the music video and there is a documentary on that as well. It's called For Those About to Rock. And it, the the crowd is both crowds were things I had never seen before. And just the, the sheer size of the crowds were unreal. But um, like another thing, too, is that like. The, another huge difference in the two is Woodstock 99 had our wretched, rotten Peace Patrol, and at Monsters of Rock, they had a military presence. So, like, clearly they planned, and um, Time Warner, from the article that I read, said that they had went to the venue a few days beforehand, they went a, a week out and realized they didn't have enough, and they beefed up all of the infrastructure and security around it because the the Russian government told them no one's going to come to your little rock concert and they were like no like we have this lineup of people and they're going to come and it's free and it ended up being like this $500,000 like 500,000 like attended show like it's wild um but another comparison to kind of draw in the rage factor I guess you could say in the crowds is that Limp Biscuit and what was at Woodstock and a not similar more ragey style music was Pantera and like the there was no moshing like that even with Pantera and and I would say that Pantera is way more aggressive than what Limp Biscuit was and I would put that on the fact that there was military presence not Peace Patrol uh, but the one thing that I did want to add to the huge difference is that there was three recorded deaths at Woodstock 99 and the countless sexual assaults. And at this event that had double the size with military presence had zero deaths. Now, I will add that <laughs> there was 49 people detained, 100 people thrown in the drunk tank, and there was 51 hospitalized, but I'm sure that that number was just as high, if not more, at Woodstock 99, based off the footage that we saw. But I just thought that if they would have taken the time to think about it and really thought about the sheer size of what they were trying to do, that all of this could have been prevented. And and a lot of people say, well, you know, like, they they were looking for a dollar at Woodstock 99, but... Time Warner ended up selling the rights of all their footage they made that night, and that became the For Those About to Rock documentary, and that made them $80 million. I think, though, for the Woodstock 99, they were only looking at what they did wrong before. 
And what they did wrong before was they didn't make enough money. So they were like hyper-focused on making money this time. So they took everything else out of the equation. Every decision they made was how can we make the most money? So they didn't know, you know, ahead of time, well, we could just sell the film. Like they didn't know that. They didn't think about that. So all they were thinking was what do we need to do to make money? Yeah. And I just thought that that was, I thought it was interesting to draw in a different perspective of a huge festival. And and pretty much, like, another thing that was really interesting as after Woodstock 99 was the very first Coachella. Like, literally that year. So, it's wild to think that Coachella is still going now. Like, if you really know Coachella, which I've never personally been, but it's not sunshines and rainbows that you always see on Instagram. I'm sure they have their issues and everything like that, but... It's a it's an annual event that people love to go to and everyone wants to go to and versus like I don't think anyone cares if they ever had another Woodstock. <laughs> All right, well the we're gonna wrap this up. Um thank you, Allison, for being uh, a guest on the pod ski, and we're gonna have you back for sure on another one. Thanks. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you, Allison, for coming on to the pod ski. It was great to have you on. We're for sure going to definitely have Allison in here again. Don't know how we're going to bring Allison in. I think we're going to try to bring her in because we watch a lot of documentaries and, and TV shows and stuff like that. So she could be a reoccurring guest for anything that we watch that we find incredibly interesting. Um, so, but yeah, what did you think of Woodstock 99? Do you have any thoughts and opinions? Um, let us know on the underscore Podski on Twitter. Um, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Podski. And be on the lookout for That's So Dolphins Talk. I don't know if we're going to be able to get that out as early right after game time on Sunday. Uh, because Trey and I both will be going to the game on Sunday. So we will have first-hand experience with what the Dolphins look like in real time. Uh, Very excited for for the game. Very excited to get down there with him and have a good time uh, with him and his family and my brother-in-law. Very, very excited for the game. Haven't been to an NFL game in a few years, so it's going to be really cool to to be back in that atmosphere, and especially for a team that uh, I can actually root for for once from Miami. So, uh, But yeah, Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at the underscore Podski, and uh, we will be coming, we are on Facebook already, so if you want to search out the Podski uh, with John Baker on Facebook, I'm pretty sure you can find it, there's just nothing up there right now, so I'm working on getting that done, but if you want to give us a follow on there, uh, we would greatly appreciate it, and we will see you next week on the Podski.